We may open our Bibles to Second Peter chapter 2. We have had some wonderful passages of Scripture already read this morning. We heard Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, that God is still a consuming fire and expects to be worshipped acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We also heard Philippians 2, 12 about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. First Peter 1, 17, about passing the time of our sojourning here in fear. We heard about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. Though the sons of Aaron, though the legitimate priests, though at the legitimate tabernacle, though offering fire before God, which he required, they altered that offering in some way, and it was unacceptable to God, and he burned them up. And he wouldn't let their family mourn them at all. The rest of the congregation could carry them out and bury them. But the brothers and the father could not mourn them because God had told them that he would be sanctified by everyone that comes near him and that the worship of God was more important than their goofing around and modifying worship a little bit with strange fire. We then had read to us Numbers chapter 14, which described the 12 spies coming back from viewing the land of Canaan. Ten gave an evil report of the land, that the giants were too great, the cities were walled up to heaven and it couldn't be taken. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, The Lord will give us this land. It's the land of promise. Let's go take it. The congregation of the Lord, as is typical, followed the majority of the preachers, and they all wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb. But the glory of the Lord appeared, and the Lord consumed those ten false spies on the spot by the plague in front of the nation of Israel. We then heard from Ezekiel chapter 13, Uh, one of the chapters in the Bible against the prophets, false prophets that came in the land of Israel that were saying that Israel would have peace and they didn't have to be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. That the Lord would protect them because they were His people and they had a great city and they had the temple of God and there was no way that Nebuchadnezzar would destroy them and they could keep on living the way they were living because there would be peace. And the wall that they built was a wall of doctrine and prophecy. It wasn't a literal wall. It was started by one of them, and the rest of them added untempered mortar to it, meaning they all got up and added their own embellishments, illustrations, examples, Bible quotations, quotations out of the newspaper, whatever they added to it to make up this wall. The last verse tells you that to wit, the whole metaphor there is about a false doctrinal wall built up that there would be peace when there wasn't going to be peace. God had already purposed that He would level that place, and He did level it and raised it, R-A-Z-E-D, raised it to the ground. But the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Was there a man that survived? Was there a man that survived well? Was there a man that survived and was asked by the general of the Chaldean armies, where would you like to live? Jeremiah was preserved out of the midst of that city. And the Lord's going to preserve His people in every case. Those passages of Scripture have already been read And I trust that those listening to this at another time might consider them because they lay a good foundation for what we have before us in 2 Peter chapter 2. As you open your Bible and you see the epistle of 2 Peter, we have three chapters there, and we had five chapters in the first epistle. So we have eight chapters out of the 1189 written by Peter for us. When we look at this first chapter... I hope you remember the first four verses were a glorious sentence of God's divine power giving us everything that we need to live a godly life before Him, be a partaker of the divine nature, and escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. God's enabled you to be able to do that. You should do that. Verses 5 through 11, the next section of chapter 1, are how to make your calling and election sure, and they list eight things that ought to be in our lives, and they ought to be abounding so that we are showing fruitfulness in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We claim to be Christians, meaning we've taken the name of Christ. We ought to have those eight things abounding in our lives. If you're doing those eight things, it tells you in verses 10 and 11, you will never fall and you will have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't have to have a great pedigree. You don't have to make a lot of money. You don't have to have a great profession. You don't have to have a pretty wife. You don't have to have a big house. You don't have to have a fine car. You don't have to have a church membership. You have to have these eight things and be doing them diligently, and the other things that are like them that flow from true faith. 
And you're showing the evidence of your election. The question that people ask is, how can I know that I'm saved? And I'm going to share one with you in the second assembly that I was written just in the last few hours. Because when they make a decision for Jesus, and they're told that that decision for Jesus is the basis for their salvation, and they know they haven't been living for the Lord, they have doubts about their salvation, and they should. But once you realize that salvation is a covenant gift by God given to a people and it's all depending upon His integrity and character and all you need to do is show the evidence of that eternal life gift that was given to you, then you can find assurance and it's there in that second section. In verses 12 through 15, Peter said, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep reminding you of things. I know you're established in these things. I know you already know this. But I'm going to keep reminding you because we know that when we walk out of this place, there is no reminder for us in the world. We have to come in here and get our priorities reset back to where the Lord wants them. Verses 16 through 19 to 16 through 18 describe the Mount of Transfiguration and what Peter saw there and heard there. And verses 19 through 21 tell us that we have something better than that. It's the written Scriptures of God, and they were given to us by holy men. As the 21st verse tells us. So now I read to you the first three verses of chapter 2. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Amen and amen. There's been a war against truth from the very beginning. God declared truth, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The first false prophet was the devil himself, and he said, Thou shalt not surely die. Our first parents bought into that lie, accepted that form of worship and cast all of us into condemnation and a curse under God. The consequences were enormous. There has been a war. Abel was born to that woman and he was one of God's elect. And by faith, Abel offered unto God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And so Cain killed him because Abel was worshiping God properly according to the truth and Cain didn't want to. Cain thought his profession was just as good as Abel's or better. After all, he was the older son, and his profession was a farmer, and his farmed goods, if they were brought to the Lord, were a lot prettier than the messy sacrifice that Abel brought. That stinking lamb with its throat cut, bleeding out all over the place, and being burned up, attracted flies. It was disgusting. God didn't care one bit about Cain's gifts his abilities, his professional success, his eldership in the family. And he rejected Cain and his offering. And so Cain killed Abel, and it's been that way all the way down through time. You know, when we come to the days of Noah, 1,656 years after the creation of man, the sons of God married whoever they wanted to of the daughters of men because they were beautiful. They became polygamous and were just gathering up beautiful pagan wives to themselves. And so God drowned the whole place. Except for one man and his family. There's a war against truth. And we are in one right now. If you read the newspaper or look at the Drudge Report or go online or think about anything going on in our country, there is a war against truth. Even even ordinary men have understood that homosexuality or the gay lifestyle as they call it, or sodomy as the Bible calls it, and other names that we have called it in past generations, is now the accepted stand, is an accepted way of living in our country. There's a war against truth. They've made a war against creation and they endorse evolution. They've made a war against childbirth and so they endorse, protect, and pay for and fund abortion. And on and on it goes. There are statements that come out of our government that the God of the Muslims and the God of Christians are the same. No, they aren't the same. 
One's name is Allah, and he's the moon god of the Arabians, and the other is Jehovah, and he's the god of the Bible. His name is I am that I am. And he's totally different and distinct from Allah that's a man-made god of the Arabians, the hallucination of men who love the darkness and want a crescent moon over their palm trees. There's a war going on, and it's everywhere And we are standing, every choice we make each day is either following the truth and promoting it, or it's departing from the truth and denigrating it. Every choice you make, everything you do, is either promoting the truth or not. And as I wrote in a recent update to you in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 4, one of the best ways to contend for the truth is by a righteous life. It's It's not by words. It's by a righteous life. Let's live out the godliness that the Bible teaches before the world. There are two groups of people in this chapter. There are the false prophets and there are those that follow them. And it's a pretty interesting study to do some, to look at the pronouns and nouns throughout this 22 verse chapter and see it shifting slightly back and forth from the false teachers to those that are ruined by them. And there's going to be some distinctions made as we move forward. I hope that you'll think about that whenever you read the chapter. The lesson, the lesson we must receive is to earnestly contend against false teachers and carnal living. The main false doctrine of these false teachers is carnal, worldly, compromising, lascivious living. Jude would boil it down in Jude chapter 1 and verse 4 that these false teachers turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. And so they preach a different form of God's grace. And brethren, do you understand and do you know, I've mentioned the name of a man from Singapore whose name is Joseph Prince. He's second only to Joel Osteen, and he may pass Joel Osteen because of the part of the world he's from that is preaching what they call a grace revolution. What does the word revolution mean? Change. A big change. So they're preaching grace and a change. Yes, they are. They've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. Right. You, ought to, you ought to hear them, read them, listen to them, watch them just a little bit to realize how they've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. You should hear them make fun of any duties expected of God's people, how they turn that into legalism. And I've mentioned some of these things before, and we have no more time to spend on that. We live in exceeding dangerous times when the Christian world is spewing a lascivious and carnal brand of religion, which we must resist with all our might and not let it spot us with false brethren, false teachers, false doctrines, or false practices. Lord, help us. When you go into 2 Peter chapter 2, you can fall into about four different ditches. Let me share the ditches with you. Ditch number one, there's a great crowd of unconverted elect wandering around that just don't know any better. This error assumes everyone in the chapter is a born-again child of God, simply unconverted or living carnally, and they're all going to go to heaven. And the damnation and the judgment that's not slumbering or lingering any longer is simply losing your life in this world. That's a ditch. We don't believe it. We reject it. Another ditch. Anyone returning to live in sin was never born again or saved in the first place, for it is impossible. Those that, those that uh, have God has guaranteed that all of His elect will progress in holiness and sanctification through life. Therefore, everyone that's described in here is a false professor. That's Calvinistic fatalism. I've just described two ditches. They're the two ditches of antinomianism, meaning God doesn't expect anything from our lives, and universalism. Everybody's saved. They're just unconverted elect. And then the other ditch is Calvinistic fatalism, that God guarantees everyone that's one of His children that they're going to progress in sanctification until the day they die. That is not true. God has not guaranteed that. Both Testaments are filled with examples of His people backsliding, and the the majority of His people backsliding and dying in their backslidden state. Like the groups that you just heard about read for us this morning. 
Ditch number three. As long as a person has invited Jesus into his heart, he is saved forever, no matter how he might live. So there's really no warning in this chapter for them, because as long as you've invited Jesus into your heart, you're going to heaven. Ditch number four. God loves all His children just as they are, and hell is just an invention of angry old theologians. These believe that all men are going to heaven because God doesn't have a hell. And so there's two more ditches. These are the large ditches of Arminianism and decisional regeneration and universalism. The truth of the matter, the truth of the matter is that God has guaranteed eternal life for the elect, but they can still ruin their lives in this world. The truth of the matter is that ministers, faithful or false, Faithful meaning that they're born again children of God properly called of Jesus Christ can seriously affect their hearers, even faithful ministers. The truth of the matter is that discipleship is a duty of each believer without which he will fall into sin. The truth of the matter is that the grace of God can be squandered and God's elect can miss God's best for their lives. We must reject any semblance of fatalism when we come to this chapter, to think that these people cannot be born again children of God because they wouldn't, they wouldn't be exposed, they wouldn't be vulnerable. There's no risk for them to fall into this backsliding state described here. That's false. We want to avoid that. If you do not apply yourself using the grace of God, you will fail of God's grace and make shipwreck. That's why the Apostle Paul said so in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27. Let me show you a few places. You're looking at chapter 2. Look at chapter 1 and verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. You can live in such a way that you look that bad, as verse 9 describes. He that lacketh these things. If you don't have those eight things that are listed there and the things like them in the New Testament, you're blind. You're not looking ahead and seeing what's coming and you have forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. The passage tells us that it's possible to backslide and have a fruitless life. God hasn't guaranteed it. God's guaranteed our eternal destiny. It's called predestination. But He hasn't guaranteed us to persevere. He's guaranteed to preserve us. It's our duty to persevere. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.27, the one I just mentioned. I'm giving you examples that God throughout the Bible has warned that His elect saints can backslide and they can fall horribly into sin. But we don't want to do that. But we first of all have to acknowledge that it's possible. And it's probable. Based on the numbers... The statistical study of the whole matter in both Testaments would say it's probable. Lord, save us from it. Now there's a man that's going to be listed by name, two men, Noah and Lot, and we want to do better than both of them. We don't need to get off the ark and go plant a vineyard and get drunk and be naked in our tent and expose ourselves to our sons. We don't need to be like Lot. We can be a whole lot better than Lot. You know, we look at it and we, we understand and accept the fact in Second Peter chapter 2 that Lot is called a just man and Lot is called a righteous man. But we don't want to be just or righteous like Lot. We want to be a whole lot more just and a whole lot more righteous than Lot. We should be able to. The Lord has convicted us sufficiently toward that end and He has instructed us more and there's more grace under the New Testament for holy living than there's ever been. Lord, help us. Amen. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Paul said, I keep under my body. That means I rule my body. And bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul was not going to be a Saul. Saul was a castaway. King Saul didn't rule himself. He didn't keep under his body. He did whatever felt good. He did whatever grabbed him at the moment. And he became a castaway and God took his Holy Spirit from King Saul and gave it to David because the distinction between those two men was great. And though David sinned by not keeping his body under at several times in his life, David repented. Saul didn't know what the word repent meant. He was going to the witch of Endor on the last night of his life. 
Repentance makes all the difference in the world, brethren. Repentance makes a huge difference. No repentance, there's nothing. There's nothing virtuous about a person that doesn't repent. They're a profane reject of God. Repentance makes the difference. But there's the Apostle Paul saying that he himself was exposed to the possibility of being shipwrecked. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't mean he was going to be a castaway. He was going to make a wreck of his life. He could have. 2 Corinthians 6.1 These verses are to remind us that there is vulnerability in our lives and we want to be faithful to the grace that God's given us. 2 Corinthians 7.1 We then, this is Paul writing as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. The grace of God can be received in vain where it doesn't bear the fruitful life that it should. That's why we started out this morning with Hebrews 12.28 Let us have grace. Let us take that grace that we have and put it to good use and bear fruit. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. That's a terrible indictment about the Galatian churches. These are This is a whole group of churches in the New Testament that had fallen from grace. It says in verse 2 that Christ shall profit you nothing if you keep believing the form of doctrine that you have started to believe. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says that the faith of some was overthrown. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16. But shun profane and vain babblings. That's why we want to bring everything back to the Word of God. Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker, a cancer, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Some men were having their faith overthrown, that the resurrection was already past, because of these two false teachers. Don't you let anyone tell you that it can't happen to a true child of God. It most definitely can happen to a true true child of God, and they can die in their disbelief, unbelief, or error. The Bible's filled with them, examples. And we don't have time to look at any more, but if you would like to see 30 or 40 examples, then look at the outline that will be on the website. In fact, it's already there. Verse 1, But there were false prophets also among the people. It has mentioned holy men of God, in the last verse of chapter 1 that gave us the Scriptures. This more sure word of prophecy we have is because God inspired holy men of God to write it down for us. But, there were false prophets also among the people. And last week we covered that enough. False prophets, and you had some of them read to you today, like Ezekiel chapter 13, that were building up that wall and dabbing it with untempered mortar and God says I'm going to blow against that thing and send hailstones against it and in my fury I'm going to rip it down and what was it? It was a new doctrinal position for the nation of Israel a new prophet, prophetic position written by Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye that there was going to be peace and there wasn't going to be peace but there were false prophets also among the people and I don't have time to go back there are numerous illustrations in the Bible of false prophets. We looked at some of the doctrinal means for handling them from the book of Deuteronomy. Even if a miracle comes to pass, they were not to be believed if they were preaching anything contrary to the Word of God. No matter how close they were to you personally, they were not to be believed. If even one prophecy didn't come to pass, they are not a prophet of God. You say, can a prophet of God make a mistake once in a while? Not a prophet of God. You say, does that mean you can't make a mistake? Who said I was a prophet of God? You have the more sure word of prophecy in your lap, and it can't make a mistake. God has saved you by His word from me. Keep in mind, brethren, that as we look at this, but there were false prophets also among the people, also means that there were holy men of God there as well. There was Moses, and there was Samuel, and there was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, and so forth. 
let us remember the fact that keep in mind that every other nation on earth except Israel only had false prophets. Do you know how rare the truth has been in the earth? When it says, but there were false prophets also among the people, we are blessed to be part of the kingdom of heaven. That we even have the truth to start with. Let's keep that vivid in our mind. Though creation and God's providence prove that Jehovah exists, that there is an eternal power and Godhead over the universe, all nations worship the creature and the imagination of their hearts rather than the Creator God. We are so blessed. The deception of humanity is horrible and it's humorous, including the pantheons of Greek and Roman deities. They're ridiculous what they've made up. You know, the word pantheon is basically a building or a temple to all the gods. And so they have this multitude of gods. And they all have some little feature about them that makes them unique. You know, whether it be love or power or war or farming, just ridiculous gods. They have to make them out of stone. They don't move. They can't see, though they have eyes. They have ears, but they hear not. They have feet, but they don't move. They've got to be carried about and stuffed into a place called the pantheon. And those are the most intelligent civilizations that we refer to in the history books of our schools. The Greeks and the Romans. I'm just thankful that when it says, but there were false prophets also among the people, the also means that there were some holy men of God there as well. And so while Athens may may have ascribed to it a great collection of wisdom, and Alexandria, Egypt may have had the world's greatest library, and the philosophers that came out of Athens, Greece may be looked up to by the world, we have some other men that lived as contemporaries with those men that were their superiors as light is superior to darkness. Amen. And that's our beloved brother Paul and Peter and the other apostles. There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. The New Testament is filled with examples of false teachers. We had them read to you last Lord's Day. I don't have time to go through another list of 30 or 40 examples from the New Testament of the warnings of false teachers that are coming. Let me just mention briefly, you know, Origen is considered a great church father. Origen was a nutcase on many doctrines. Origen wrote his own parallel Bible version called the Hexampla. Origen thought that when it said in the Bible that men made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He took that literally. This is the tradition that's known about Origen, that he performed some minor surgery on himself so that he could be a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Origen is the one that came up with the idea of the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. That's who they appeal. That's as far back as they can appeal to a concept called eternal generation of the deity of Jesus Christ. And they call him a great church father. He lived from 185 to 254, and he corrupted a great deal of nominal Christianity. Arius. Arius was born about the time that Origen died. Arius took Origen's doctrine of eternal sonship and said, Origen's not consistent. If eternal sonship is true, then Jesus Christ is a begotten God. He's a God, not the God. He can't be the God because he was begotten by the God. He's got to be a God. Amen, Arius. Now listen, if anybody heard those words that's taken any theology, they would... Amen, Arius is where we stand. Because Arius was simply saying what Origen has taught, if it's consistently applied, Jesus is a begotten God. He's a God, not the God. We, of course, reject the whole thing as being superstitious Gnostic heresy. Augustine is called the greatest church father. He was from 354 to 430. He held infant baptism was necessary to save babies. Mary's perpetual virginity. The real presence of Jesus Christ in the communion element. Sacramental grace was conveyed by the sacraments. Free will of man, that's Augustine. He's considered the greatest. Augustine of Hippo, North Africa, considered to be the greatest of the church fathers. We totally reject him. If you're a good Calvinist and you're going to a Presbyterian church or a Reformed Baptist church 
and you're one of the respected men in the church in your library, you're going to have the works of Augustine because any good Calvinist traces Calvinism back to Augustinianism, which is the theology of Augustine. Let me repeat what I, the few things that I mentioned. Infant baptism, he was the first great proponent of infant baptism and that it regenerates Mary's perpetual virginity, the real presence of Jesus Christ in the communion elements, and anybody wants to trace themselves back to him, on what basis? Right. Let's ignore the rest of these that I have. You know, when I mentioned a bunch of names, whether it be Fred Phelps of the Westboro Baptist Church or Jim Jones or Billy Graham or Joel Osteen or C.I. Schofield, there have been a large number of false teachers and they're all around us and so are their doctrines. Notice what it says, Second Peter 2.1, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. And they were in the New Testament, and they were between the time of the New Testament and the last couple centuries, which I just gave you a few names, and presently they're all around us, around the world. Who privately shall bring in damnable heresies. They're not going to come out and say, I'd like to start a new religion. They're going to sneak it in. It's going to be brought in in a privy matter. Not openly or publicly, secretly, privately, stealthily, craftily. That's the meaning of the word privily there in this verse. The Bible speaks about false brethren that have crept in unawares. Those are Bible words. Crept in unawares. If you flip over to Jude, remember Jude is the Holy Spirit's commentary on 2 Peter 2. And 2 Peter 2 is the Holy Spirit's commentary on Jude. Those two chapters are very similar. I've had asked you to read them two Sundays in a row, two Saturdays in a row, because of their value. Look at verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares. For there are certain men crept in unawares. That's our definition of the word privily. Men creeping in. They creep into houses in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. They creep into churches. The Apostle Paul, when he lists all of the painful things in his life, that list is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he ends it up, he ends up one of the lists with false brethren. False brethren. Everywhere. Sneaking in. He told the church at Ephesus, which you had read to you last Sunday, as he departed from Ephesus, never to see their faces again, he said, from among you are going to arise elders that are going to lead people astray with new doctrines. They're going to try to devour this flock, this church that I started. I have exhorted you every day about this warning. And so we want to be constantly vigilant that we do not change our doctrine. That we hold fast to what has been conveyed to us. When the Lord wants to convince us to change, He will show us a tsunami of evidence, take away all the arguments on which we once stood, replace them with newer and better arguments, and answer all our objections to the new position. He's done it before. He'll do it again. But until then, we hold tenaciously to the faithful word we have been taught. And we don't move. We're not looking for some new thing. We're trusting for God to lead us in His Word. But it says privily, and throughout the Bible, Jesus would call them wolves in sheep's clothing. They're not wolves alone. Wolves in their own clothing. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like they're sheep, but they're actually wolves. They look like they're innocent, but they want to devour the flock. And so we have the word here, who privily shall bring in they're going to sneak in false doctrines and they're going to creep, they're going to sneak it in. They're going to use a Jesus. Paul called it another Jesus. They're going to use a gospel, another gospel. They're going to have a spirit, but it's going to be another spirit. And so they're going to creep in with another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit. And Paul said about the Corinthians, they were so weak because they were so caught up in their charismatic gifts. He said they were so weak that they might well bear with them. What a shame who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Now when it says damnable, damnable doesn't always mean hell. Damnable means destruction and judgment. And in this case, damnable heresies are heresies that deserve God's judgment and will get God's judgment. God does not look kindly on heresy or heretics. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19-21, through 21, heretics are in the list 
of those sins that shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. A heretic is not someone going to hell. Whenever I write a proverb commentary, someone around the world is going to write back and ask, why did you say they're going to hell? I never said they were going to hell. I just called them a heretic. But because they don't understand the word and the Bible use of the word, they think the word heretic means that someone's going to hell. All it means is they're not believing the truth. The word heretic simply means they're not believing the truth. Now, if they were Roman Catholics, Roman Catholics, when they use the word heretic, who are they using the word heretic about? Us. And what do they mean by the word heretic? Oh, yes. We're going to hell. There's no salvation for us outside the mother church. We agree with them on half of that statement, that they are the mother church. They're the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, just like Revelation chapter 17 teaches. So it says, damnable heresies, false doctrines are going to come in that are worthy of God's judgment. You know, if somebody else wants to call us a heretic, let's be thankful for the pleasure and the blessing. The Apostle Paul was called a heretic, and he appreciated those words. He said in... uh, Acts chapter 24 and verse 14, when he was testifying of his religion as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he said, This I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. They can call it heresy if they want to, but I base my religion upon what is written. And see, that saves us from heresy. But as soon as we start following men or any man or whenever anyone does follow a man instead of the written word of God, then he's exposed to the danger of heresy. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.19 to be reminded of something that has happened in the past and it will happen in the future. And so many don't don't know this and they don't think about this. And so when a heretic crops up in a church, they're scared. They're startled. They're confused. They're shocked. Whenever we have a matter of church judgment that comes before me, the person that I'm least concerned about or least fearful about as a pastor and a shepherd of a church is the one that we're going to exclude. It's the rest of the flock. Who is going to be rattled by this little event? Who is going to be shaken? Who's going to be confused? Who's going to need to raise their hand and not understand what's going on? It is terrifying. I remember a long, long time ago when I was a, just a church member and a matter of church judgment would come up and I would go to the pastor and ask him how he was doing on a Sunday morning and his face would be white and he'd be all nervous and he'd say, I just don't know how it's going to turn out. I said, oh, come on. You know this church is going to stand for what is right, and and I'll help them if they don't. Uh, Those are the kind of conversations we used to have. And he'd say, someday you're going to grow up and you'll know what I'm talking about. And I've grown up. And every time we have a matter of church judgment that comes before us, I just sweat bullets wondering who hasn't paid attention, who isn't walking with the Lord, who hasn't remembered what they've been taught, who doesn't have eyes to see, Who hasn't thought and been able to figure this out before it even happened? Who doesn't understand the detailed emails that I've sent explaining exactly what happened and the chronology behind it? I fear. But brethren, we can't do that. You know why most, one one of the reasons that most pastors don't want to practice church judgment is the, is the terrifying confusion and chaos that it creates in churches. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't. Right. It's no, no case is ever going to be brought before you until it's all laid out and 2 plus 2 equals 4. Look at the verse. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. For there must be also heresies among you. This is Paul writing to a church he started, the church of the Corinthians. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. And this is what we're learning in 2 Peter chapter 2. God is going to cause heresies to arise among us. There must be heresies because that is how God exposes, reveals, and identifies those that He has approved. Because they stand for the truth and don't follow friends. They stand for the truth and don't follow family. 
They are willing to pick up the first stone and do the casting that the New Testament describes. Back to 2 Peter chapter 2. Even denying the Lord that bought them. But there were, we're at verse 1 of 2 Peter 2. But there were false prophets also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you. Who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. They are going to bring in false doctrines that deserve judgment. And we're going to read about that judgment. Even denying the Lord that bought them. The use of even indicates that this is an extreme application of heresy in context. This is really bad heresy. The word even sometimes means a specific example of a general proposition that's been made that shows how far you should understand and take the general proposition. For instance, the Lord hath made all things for Himself. Proverbs 16.4 Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. If you were given the words, the Lord hath made all things for Himself, one of the first logical questions you would ask is, well, what about evil? Okay, even the wicked for the day of evil. Even wicked men have been created by the holy God of heaven for the day of their judgment. The day of evil that he will bring upon them. And so there's the use of the word even. So we've got ourselves here an example of a damnable heresy. And the damnable heresy here is denying the Lord that bought them. Now many use this text to teach that Jesus Christ died for, purchased, bought, and redeemed His elect, and those elect are capable of losing their salvation. Or, Jesus Christ died, bought, purchased, and redeemed all men, and so that some of those men end up going to hell because they deny the Lord Jesus Christ that bought them. And they use this text against us. They use this text to prove, in their humble opinion, that it proves that Jesus died for all men, not only for the elect. Because here are men that denied the Lord Jesus Christ that bought them. And if you read the context, they're going to hell. All you've got to do is look at the end of verse 3 and see that their judgment is not lingering and their damnation is not slumbering. In verse 9, they're reserved under the day of judgment to be punished. Over in verse 17, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. So we agree with them that these false teachers are going to hell. But we don't agree that the Lord bought them, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ. And so much more could be said about that. Listen, if we were to believe that, if we were to believe that this teaches that Jesus Christ died for all men and bought them back and redeemed them from the punishment of their sins, and yet most of them go to hell that would fly in the face of what the rest of the Bible teaches us about the covenant salvation that we have in God, guaranteed by Jesus Christ. And so because of the first rule of Bible study given to us two verses ago, 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, we know that these words here are of no private interpretation to arrive at a new doctrine that Jesus died for all men and that many of them will go to hell. So what does it mean? Pastor, what does it mean? What I'm about to tell you that it means, our fathers in the faith understood. Like a John Gill and a Matthew Poole, which doesn't prove that it's right. I'm going to show you from the Word of God. Peter was a Jew. Who was Peter writing? Jews. We are specifically told that in the first verse of the first epistle. And this epistle tells us that he's writing to the same group of people that he wrote the first time. Peter is a Jew, writing to Jews. He's bringing up an argument that was used by the greatest Jewish prophet, and that was Moses. And Moses used this line of reasoning many, many times, and I'd like you to look at it in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy 32. This is an argument used often in the Old Testament by God and by prophets to exacerbate or to aggravate or to exaggerate or to to properly show the heinousness of Israelites sinning. And here's here's the reasoning. You know verse 4, because verse 4 is one of those wonderful texts of Scripture about the glorious God we worship. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is He. We love that verse. But now look at the next two. They have corrupted themselves. 
the Israelites, the church of God, under the Old Testament. They have corrupted themselves. And I want you to notice some of these words. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They look differently. They are marked out by spots. Like spots, they are different. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Notice the wording. Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? There is Moses in his final words to Israel appealing to the fact that when they sinned and when they rebelled against God and corrupted His worship, they were rebelling against the Father and the God that bought them. Bought them from where? Bought them out of Egypt. This is used about 50 times in the Old Testament to aggravate the sin of Israelites by rebelling against God. Had they forgotten that God had delivered them out of Egypt? Had they forgotten that God had purchased them out of Egypt? These are the Bible words used. Had they forgotten that God redeemed them out of the land of bondage in this place? Had they forgotten and were they rebelling against the God that had bought them? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? When and how did God buy the Old Testament church? He bought them out of Egypt and the sacrifice was the Egyptians. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, is what God says. Back to 2 Peter 2 and verse 1. Even denying the Lord that bought them. So much more could be said, and some of you I know love the intellectual exercise of understanding this little phrase here. It cannot mean what Arminians want it to mean and need it to mean, and it doesn't mean that. There is a very plausible understandable explanation for it because Peter as a Jew is writing Jews and he is showing a terrible degree of their sin in that the the lives of these false teachers by the carnal, lascivious way they're going to live is denying by their actions the God that bought them out of Egypt and is the God of Israel like he was the God of no other nation on earth. In Titus it says this about such false teachers. When it says denying the Lord, you know, no, no false teacher was going to get anywhere coming into a church that Paul had started and say, the first thing I want to say here is that I don't believe in Jehovah. No, it's denying him in works. Because Paul describes these teachers this way in Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God. See, their lips and their words are going to be that they know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. So as this is comparing Scripture with Scripture. So that we take all the Scriptures and fit them together and we understand what Peter meant when he said, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. I'm sorry for those of you that would like to hear more on that explanation. You're going to have to look at it in print because it will be on the website. And bring upon themselves swift destruction. God's not going to put up with false teachers very long. How long did He put up with Nadab and Abihu? A few seconds. How long did he put up with ten spies who moved the whole congregation of Israel against Joshua and Caleb? A few minutes. How long did he put up with the Israelites in the days of Jeremiah? A few years. And then Nebuchadnezzar destroyed them. Notice this terminology here. He'll bring upon themselves swift destruction. I want you to notice that when the wicked are judged by God, they bring it upon themselves. Though we hold a very high degree and a high view of God's decrees made before the world began, we understand at all times that God judges men for their sins. They bring God's judgment upon themselves. And we never want to forget that. We never want to forget that. When God, when we read in the Bible that God has vessels of mercy and honor and He has vessels of dishonor and wrath, those men fitted themselves to that by choosing to rebel against God with the free will that He gave our first father in Eden and with the free will that the devil had in the presence of God. They chose to bring God's judgment upon themselves. And so that is briefly implied here in the words and bring upon themselves swift 
destruction. God will judge false teachers. You know, sometimes it takes longer than other times, and sometimes it doesn't happen in the speed that we think it should happen. But the very next chapter of this epistle is going to tell us that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. When Jesus prophesied judgment upon his generation, it didn't happen for another 40 years. Though he said many things about God sending his armies to burn up their city of Jerusalem, it didn't happen for 40 years. He made those statements and those prophecies in 30 A.D. It didn't happen until 70 A.D., but it did happen. And included in these words is the great day of judgment that is still coming. The swift destruction will be the, there's going to be, it's going to be very swift. It's not going to be a long, slow process. When Jesus Christ appears, there's going to be mighty angels and flaming fire that are going to burn this planet up. It will be swift destruction. It's just not happening in the way that you're looking at the word swift and thinking that as soon as they preach a bad sermon, God cuts them off. No, there's lots of men that have lived for many years in this country preaching lots of bad sermons. But when God's judgment comes, it will be sudden and it will be swift and there will be no remedy against it. He that, being often reproved, hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Proverbs 29 and verse 1. Verse 2. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. Only fatalists presume that God has promised to protect all of His elect from heresy. It says many shall follow their pernicious ways. Many. Jesus says many go in at the wide gate in the broad way. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30 said in the church at Corinth that many were weak and sick and many slept. There were many that had already been killed for their disobedience and how they viewed the Lord's Supper and how they treated the Lord's Supper along with all the other heresies that the church at Corinth had imbibed. Many. Look at this word. Many. To the degree. And as the Lord shows us truth and convicts us of truth, we should be so thankful that we're not part of the many, that we are part of the few. It is by His grace. And it is by our faithfulness and diligence to use His grace to worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear and to trust Him and study His Word the way He has taught us lest we move ourselves away from the hope of the Gospel. Paul warned that there were many that were belly worshipers in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, whose God is their belly. And that he had warned them with tears many times about them. Pernicious. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. Pernicious means evil, lascivious, or wicked ways. The next clause helps us understand the word pernicious if you're just reading your Bible and you don't have a dictionary. Notice the second half of verse 2. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. It's going to be evil spoken of because there's going to be evil being lived out by these people, these many that are following the false teachers. You know, in considering this particular verse and coming to you today, because we live in America, we have a situation where this is truer than in many nations. This second verse, many shall follow their pernicious ways. These false teachers are going to teach an evil, wicked, lascivious way of being a Christian. Many are going to like that approach to Christianity, that they can live any way they want to. I mean, you know, we make fun of the Catholics, but it comes right down to many Baptists as well. The Catholics think because they go to confession once a week or go to a Mass once a week, they can live any way they want to and God's happy with them because they've been to Mass once. They went and took an hour, popped in there, got the holy water on them, bought a candle, stuffed a $10 bill in a box, and left. And they think that they're okay, that they can live any way they want. I've been to confession, I've been to Mass. But you know, Baptists do the same things. All the Arminian Baptists that we know, they make a decision for Jesus, they get baptized, and they think that that is guaranteed their salvation no matter how they live. And so they go out and live any way they want to. But you know what? In America, there's too much of a Christian foundation to America's thought processes. The Bible is too common of a holy book so that many in the nation, though they're not Christians in any functioning definition of that word by the Bible, they can tell when you're not acting like one. That is scary. And it ought to scare us. 
And for this first sermon from this verse, I want it to scare us so that it will cause us to be careful in our lives so that the way of truth shall not be evil spoken of because of our lives. You know, when you pop off with something disrespectful about authority, for anyone in the room that knows anything about Christianity, you're wrong. Because that's not how you speak about authority. If you tell a filthy story or a filthy joke, they know that that's condemned by the Bible. If you use God's name in vain, they know that's condemned by the Bible. If you don't show perfect integrity in financial matters, they know it's condemned by the Bible. They know if you're not loving your spouse, if you're complaining, they know that's condemned by the Bible. By whom the way of truth is evil spoken of. And you know, I don't have time right now. What is hard about preaching expositionally is every clause I come to, I can think of a sermon that I've preached to you that I'd like to re-preach to you for that clause. And this one would be, all the verses in the Bible that tell us to let our light shine before men, that tell us that our conduct ought to be becoming to the gospel, like Titus chapter 2 and verse 1, and that actions speak louder than words, and we are saying so much to the world. The only Bible that has been said, the only Bible that many will ever read, is your life. And so we want to be careful in what happens is that even a worldling can turn on Joel Osteen and know that that isn't the Bible. Because as a child, they heard a couple of sermons in whatever setting, or they went to daily vacation Bible school, or they went to Sunday school for a couple of years, and they heard about the wrath of God. And they listen to Joel Osteen, and they look at that smiling, grinning Cheshire cat on television, and they realize that is not Christianity. And so the way of truth is evil spoken of because of false teachers like that. We want to preach the truth and we want to live the truth and we want the two of them to be consistent. No church, no pastor, no father, no family will ever be perfect. But how does every church, every pastor, every father, and every family deal with sin that comes up in the church or in the pastor or in the father or in the family? They deal with it the Bible way. So that we are always being consistent. We preach the truth. We live the truth. When we fail the truth, we repent and get back in the way of truth. And that is how we're supposed to live. But when we don't do any one of those three things, when we corrupt the doctrine, when we corrupt the practice, or when we corrupt the recovery, the world can say, that isn't Christianity. And so the truth is evil spoken of. And through covetousness, most of these false teachers are money hungry. And through covetousness, that is why one of the conditions for being a bishop, one of the conditions for being a deacon, is that he cannot love filthy lucre. He cannot be greedy of filthy lucre. He cannot be given to filthy lucre. Money shouldn't matter to a man of God. Because if money matters to him, he's going to compromise truth to keep the well-heeled and the well-heeled givers in his church. That should never be there. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words. You know, we had cunningly devised fables just back six verses ago in chapter 1 and verse 16 where Peter said, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Verse 3, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. These false prophets, false teachers, turn churches into money-making machines for themselves, praise-giving machines for themselves. They exalt themselves through covetousness. And we have in context a man given to us over there in verse 15, Balaam, and the wages of unrighteousness. And we know what motivated that man. And so we're being given here, listen, the Holy Spirit chose this chapter for us. The Holy Spirit chose 22 verses and stuck them in right here between the more sure word of prophecy of the last three verses of chapter 1 and the new heaven and the new earth of chapter 3. But we have these 22 verses warning us about false teachers. We want to recognize that there will be false teachers. They will creep into the churches. They will bring damnable heresies. God's going to swiftly judge them. God will take care of them. They're covetous men, and they teach a lascivious form of God's grace by which we can live any way we want to and still go to heaven, and that is not taught in the Bible. The fact that someone can live like Samson and go to heaven, live like Lot and go to heaven, live like Solomon and go to heaven, those are exceptions, and you are not named either Samson, Lot, or Solomon. 
The Bible tells us that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. To make your calling and election sure, according to chapter 1, it's to do eight things that are specifically listed as things you are supposed to do. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. That's the evidence of eternal life. But when it is made about a personal decision, or it's based on God's elected most of the world's population, or whatever, or there's universalism, or there is no hell anymore, that's all false doctrine, and it leads to lascivious living. And through covetousness, they will preach this modified form of grace because it will attract far larger crowds. The easier that you can make being a Christian, the bigger the church you're going to have. It's that easy in America. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. These men were foreordained to condemnation. Jude chapter 1 and verse 4. And that damnation has been held off for a long time, but it's getting closer. It's not slumbering. It's not lingering. It is moving toward its completion in which God will judge these men with eternal damnation and judgment. If you look down at verse 9, you can understand that this has shifted to eternal judgment and it cannot be avoided. The last part of verse 9, that God is able, the Lord will reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. There is a day of judgment coming in which wicked men will be punished. And though for a long time, because when Peter wrote this epistle, it had been 4,000 years from the beginning of the the foundation of the world, 4,000 years since creation, and before creation, these men were ordained to it. Jude puts it in these words, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now, how do you get before of old? Before of old, wow, that's got to go back a long time because you got to go back to when it was old and then you got to get before that. You got to get before it was old time. That's when there was no time. That's in the beginning. In the very beginning, God ordained these wicked teachers that are going to arise. And this is, listen, this is sober business that we're talking about. This is unbelievable what we're talking about. And because He knows that it's unbelievable and the Holy Spirit knows that you can't fully grasp it, and because you're about to go outside and see a beautiful blue sky, green trees, and eat food, and you're going to have a nice car and you've got nice clothes on, you're feeling good about yourself, and nothing bad has happened to you and nothing bad is happening to the world, and in fact America is very prosperous in 2015, because He knows that you're wondering about this, He is going to bring up three examples from human history and angelic history. And those three examples, he's going to give one verse to each of them, and they are horrifying. And that's the second service today for us to be reminded from the pen of the Apostle Peter, from God the Holy Spirit, that there is judgment coming in this world. It doesn't matter how peaceful and calm it is. In fact, the Bible says, when they shall say, peace and safety, judgment is going to fall. Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. This is eternal damnation by its context, and it is not sleepily forgetting to come. This ferocious language is by the Holy Ghost, and it is part of the gospel of grace of the New Testament, and it must be preached, and we should embrace it and humble ourselves before it and believe it and know that it is coming and live in light of it. Let's make our calling and election sure. Like verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1 already told us, the Holy Spirit set us up perfectly to be able to handle chapter 2 by telling us how that the judgment that's going to come in chapter 2 will not touch us. And the ninth verse is to comfort you in the middle of chapter 2 where it says the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Though the devil and his angels were thrown out of heaven, the elect and holy angels were preserved and delivered by God. Though the world was suffocated by a flood in 1656 after creation, Noah and the seven members of his family were saved in the ark. 
Though Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain were burned to ash and condemned by an overthrow of fire, which we're going to read about, Lot was saved for Abraham's sake. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Fire is falling on this planet and soon. Those that are out there following a pernicious form of gracious doctrine, those that have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness, those that call us legalists, those that call us prehistoric Neanderthal, out-of-time Bible thumpers, will all face the Lord Jesus Christ in flaming fire. He's able to deliver us temporally, and He's going to deliver us in that great day when He comes because we're looking for Him. And we're looking to adore Him. And we want to worship Him reverently with godly fear so that we're acceptable to Him because our God is a consuming fire. And that damnation and that judgment is not lingering and it's not slumbering. It looks that way. Peter is going to say in the next chapter, for this they willingly are ignorant of. They willingly choose to forget the three examples that when we come back after our break, are what Peter lays out before us to remind us this is very serious business. This is the word of God. Ignore it to your own peril. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.